Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, Is Child Sexual Abuse Inevitable? I welcome back to the program, Elizabeth Letourneau, the director of the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse at the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. Years ago, Elizabeth had a key insight. What if instead of focusing exclusively on victims and parents for child sexual abuse prevention, we really turn to the source of the problem, the person at risk of sexually abusing a child. Now, we don't really like to talk about that or even think about the fact that some youth and some adults are sexually attracted to children. But what if we could teach middle schoolers about sexual boundaries and about consent before they ever made a misstep? And what if those youth and adults struggling with the shame of an unwanted sexual attraction to children had a way to get help before they ever harmed a child? And really most importantly, what if we lifted the weight so many victims feel about their responsibility to somehow keep themselves safe and place this responsibility instead squarely on the shoulders of those that might otherwise harm them? I know you're going to be just as fascinated as I am by this conversation. Take a listen. Well, Elizabeth, welcome back to One in Ten. It's so great to have you. I'm so glad to be back. Well, a few months or a year or whatever it has been since the last time we talked has not at all reduced my interest in some work that you're doing right now that I'm excited to talk to you about. And So where I'd like to start is that, of course, in many of our conversations lately, we've talked about the impact of the pandemic on child abuse. And for many of us in the prevention and intervention world, when the pandemic started, we all started working on things like, how do you convert mandatory reporting training to a virtual environment? Or how do you convert training for parents to a virtual environment or those kinds of things? And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today is you went in an entirely different uh, direction that I loved and went to the source of the problem. And so I'd just love for you to tell me both about sort of the genesis of your thinking about how to approach this, what you actually did do, the training that you guys developed. Help Wanted Prevention Intervention is an online intervention that is targeted towards people who self-identify as having a sexual interest in children and wanting help either with that interest or as often as not with other issues that come up when you have such a highly stigmatized interest, even if you have never acted on it and never intend to. So we had the idea to develop this, um, gosh, back in 2003, I think, on a model that was developed in Germany at the time that was called the Dunkelfeld Prevention Project. And That project is an in-person clinical intervention. They've since um, also released an online intervention. We knew we needed an online intervention because we have very different mandatory reporting laws in the United States relative to Germany, where the protections for clinical services extend to talking to people about um, sex crimes even, not even just sexual interest in children, but sexual crimes with children. And we certainly don't have that in the United States. And we know that many, many people with sexual interest in children want help and it's very difficult to find it. Um, Most people only provide services to individuals after they've offended and been caught. And that's too late. It's too late to help the kids who were abused and it's too late to help the, the kids and the adults who engage in the abusive behavior. 
So we knew we wanted to do a prevention program that's targeted to people with this very serious risk factor. Sexual interest in children is, is perhaps one of, if not the most salient risk factor for engaging in harmful sexual behavior uh, with children. But it's not a, it's not like a sentence, right? Like it's, it's not, many people avoid ever acting on this attraction. And so we also know there's a way to do this. And so we Developed Help Wanted first by collaborating with uh, researchers and clinicians and preventionists and policy people. And then we also did some research with people with sexual interest in children and asked them what would have helped them when they were younger, when they were teenagers, when they were young adults, what, what would have helped them most? And then we designed an intervention. Uh, we collaborated with a, an organization called 3C Institute that helped us as clinicians take these words and turn them into very appealing graphics and videos and and drag and drop and and all kind using all different kinds of teaching methods they helped us shorten everything because attention for online interventions is much shorter than it is for in person interventions um, so 3c institute really helped us take what, what could have been a traditional kind of clinical intervention and made it truly into a good online prevention intervention and then we sat on it for a couple of years because i wanted to test it to see if it worked and so I work in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and the ethos of public health is you don't provide a service until you know at least that it does no harm, and at best that it's actually achieving the intended goal. And, you know, we believed in this intervention, but that doesn't mean that it really works. Then the pandemic hit. And Oak Foundation is a foundation that is based in Geneva, Switzerland. They reached out to us. They knew about Help Wanted and some of our other work. They reached out to us and said, could you please release the Help Wanted online prevention intervention? We see an increase uh, reaching out for help among people with sexual interest in children. And indeed, we, our, our colleagues and friends at the Lucy Faithful uh, Foundation in the United Kingdom and Stop It Now here in the United States, we're seeing increased traffic to their websites by people with concerns about their own thoughts and behaviors. So we said, yes, if you can give us a little bit of support, which they did, we will release this to the public, even though we have not yet been able to find the funding to evaluate the help wanted intervention. So we released it on May 8th, and within three weeks, we had uh, more than 2,000 people had gone to visit the website, uh, which we took as evidence that there was a real need for it. We included some feedback questions for each of the five sessions that the intervention has five sessions that you can go through in any order that you want and in any pace that you want, plus a resources page. And we include questions to say, you know, kind of what worked with this session and what needs work. And so we got some great feedback already from close to 300 people that have taken the intervention. Uh, you know, some people love it. Some people see a lot of need for improvement. But in general, the responses have been really quite positive. Like most people are, are pretty pleased with this, even though we know it can be improved. What I'm also really excited to talk about is that this intervention caught the interest of both Google and Facebook. They are promoting Help Wanted in, in ways that I am just amazed by. So what Google did is they have what's called a one box. And they, they have one boxes for serious issues where they use their, you know, their amazing algorithm and AI technology to identify if someone appears to be looking for child sexual exploitation materials, CSAM materials, 
or other abusive behaviors against children. And this one box is the first thing that will pop up before any other search uh, results pop up. The one box pops up. A good way to get an idea of what a one box looks like is if you type in anything about suicide, the first thing you get is this one box that has the 1-800 number for preventing suicide. They have a one box that pops up for CSEM and, and related issues. They provide uh, a link to how to report CSEM. They provide a link for uh, victim services, and they provide a link to help wanted for people with concerns that about so own sexual. Isn't that amazing? That is. That's wonderful. I was so grateful when Google reached out. I really was. Completely separate from Google reaching out about that, Facebook reached out. Facebook had already developed a, a self-help forum. And I, I, I'm not on Facebook. I, I actually don't do much social media. And so I'm not entire. I'm probably not going to use the right words, but they developed a place where people who either themselves had concerns about their own thoughts and behaviors or loved ones uh, had concerns. And, and they wanted to link to help wanted in that. And we said, yes, of course, we would love that. Well, then they, they got a little more interested and they offered us some free advertising. And they also offered us access to their advertising group that they work with to develop an ad for Help Wanted. And so this ad got developed and it's beautiful. It's really simple. They launched the ad on October 9th. And I think on November 9th, it was either four or five weeks later, they gave us some metrics and you know something like 5 million people had been exposed to the ad and 3 million people had done something else. But the thing that is really mind boggling is that 84,000 people have gone to the Help Wanted website. That is so wonderful. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. We just got these numbers last week and I, so we have another meeting with Facebook next week and I should say Help Wanted is in English right now, but we have the full transcript for all five of the sessions in Arabic, Chinese, Mandarin, Hindi, French and Spanish. And so when they targeted, they targeted their ads to countries that speak those languages. And, and we still have a bunch of their advertising money to use in other countries. That is so, so exciting. Yeah. So 84,000 people. And obviously not all those people are going there for concerns about their own needs. But someone um, they're concerned about. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. and so we haven't dug into those numbers because they're really very, very new, but we are just blown away. And so we are going to, we then did get funding from the CDC to evaluate Help Wanted. And so Wonderful. I know, right? It's been, it's been like the worst year on record for the United States. And, and it has also been a really good year in many ways for the Moore Center mm. uh, for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse. The CDC funded two perpetration prevention interventions, and we received one of those grants. And so it's a four-year grant. We're partnering with colleagues. Co-developers of Help Wanted include Amanda Rizica, who works with me at the Moore Center, and Ryan Shields, who works at University of Massachusetts Lowell. And then we're partnering with Jill Levinson at Barry University and Daniel Rothman, who is a clinician in Winnipeg and just absolutely brilliant when it comes to uh, working with children who, who have problem sexual behaviors. So we've got this great group. And then we have another colleague who is a young person with sexual interest in children who's been advising me anonymously for many years. And I'm not going to use his name right of now. Of course. Pleased that um, he's becoming a little, a little more comfortable, uh, being a little more open. Um, but he's just been a remarkable individual and a remarkable partner. So we're going to get, we're going to take one more stab at revising Help Wanted based on all this great feedback we've been getting, and then we're going to launch a randomized controlled trial to see 
what does it do? That'll be uh, a year from now before the trial gets launched. And then it'll be another year before I can come back onto your podcast to tell you what the results are. I was going to say, I hope you're planning as soon as you have results to come right back because we we are so excited to hear that. Um, You know, one of the things I'm struck by, first of all, it just tells you how um, how much concern there is over this issue? You know, what concerns me is not the number itself. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm glad 84,000 people have reached out. Yeah. It's yeah. more that there's so much stigma around talking about the issue yeah. that I don't think anybody thinks that there are 84,000 people who by seeing an ad for one month would be picking up the phone or in this case, dialing, you know, going online yeah. looking for that because they know someone in their family, a friend, a, you know, themselves, whomever, whatever that right. represents. And, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, it has to be since those ads have only been out for a relatively brief period of time. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I mentioned the Dunkelfeld Prevention Program in Germany, and they got started, you know, back in 2003, 2004, they may have launched in 2005. They had advertising from Volkswagen Foundation. And so they had really slick, beautiful, gorgeous ads. Mm. And they got, you know, they've had um, more than 10,000 people reach out to them for help. Wow. And so I think when you build a thoughtful intervention and make it safe for people to access, they absolutely will. And this really gives proof to the concept that people with sexual interest in children, they're not a homogenous group. They're, they're not destined to offend at all. And you know, they're not monsters. And we we really need to figure out ways to reach out and provide better access to even more and better services. Help Wanted will not be enough. Um, it's online. There's no clinical mm-hmm. intervention. So if somebody needs more intensive services, this is not where they're going to find it. And we do have a resource page where we try to provide support for that. But Again, it's 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 challenging for for folks even who are never going to offend to reach out for help. One of the things that I also like about this, from a victim perspective, is that up until now, a lot of prevention programming has really been, in some ways, directed at victims carrying a load to protect themselves. Yes, you know. Absolutely. And wouldn't it be really great to have that boulder roll off your back and to feel that? there's a way for someone who has a sexual interest in children to get help so that you're not having to feel that every moment you need to be hypervigilant to protect yourself. I mean, I think that there's there's benefit on all possible sides of this. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think, you know, our history, the United States history of victim-focused prevention efforts literally goes back to 1949, and we've not seen any shift in that focus. These kind of school-based uh, victim-focused prevention programming to teach kids to to recognize, resist, and report abuse, and they don't have the wherewithal to do that most of the time. It's, it does not hurt children to give them high-quality sure. victim-focused prevention, but it it absolutely is not reasonable for this to be on their and their parents' shoulders and nobody else's. And, and we don't do that with child physical abuse. You know, we don't ask kids to recognize, resist, and report their parents abusing them physically. That's such so a fair this point. Sexual. Yeah, with, with child physical abuse, we reach out to the people who are, are at risk of offending. And then we give them the tools and the resources and the knowledge to avoid doing that. And we need to have that kind of a mindset, which again, is very much of a, a kind of a public health prevention oriented mindset with child sexual abuse as well. I just love the work you're doing. So let's segue a little bit into another area that the Moore Center is involved in, and it is school-based, but it's really geared, again, 
in this case, at middle school students, I believe, in terms of really trying to teach them healthy behaviors. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, describing it correctly. So I'll have you finish describing it. But I was so interested, not only in the program, but sort of what you're finding as you're evaluating it. Sure. So this is our responsible behavior with younger children, school-based intervention, as you said, that that targets kids who are in sixth and seventh grade. Uh, So, you know, 11, 12, 13 years of age. So kids in that age range and 14-year-olds are at risk of engaging young children in inappropriate, illegal, potentially harmful sexual behaviors, largely because nobody tells them to not to, right? So, you know, when I'm talking to a group of people and I ask people to raise their hands, have you ever told an older kid to not hit or punch or kick or tease a younger kid? Everybody in the audience raises their hand. Sure. And then when you say, and did you also tell that older kid not to touch the penis or vagina of the younger kid? Nobody in the audience raises their hand. Mm. And it's like a light bulb goes off. We, we assume that kids know that younger children are off limits because it is so obvious to us and kids don't know. They figure it out by age 15. So if you look at arrest records, you know, there's this increasing uh, rate of arrest for kids who are 12 and then 13 and then 14 for engaging younger children in inappropriate and obviously illegal sexual behaviors. But by 15, that really drops. And that's a learning curve. That's, that's, a, that's just a classic learning curve. And our position is we shouldn't wait for kids to figure this out on their, we can tell them to not do this and to why. And so we developed responsible behavior with younger children to target kids right at the point where they're most likely to become sexually active. If you target too early, that's not going to be relevant to the kids and they won't remember probably. But sixth and seventh grade seemed like a great time where we were getting calls from schools saying we need help around this topic anyways, you know, with sexting and, and everything else that's available online. And then, you know, we tried to keep it lean. And again, we looked at what are good prevention intervention strategies. You need to have repeated sessions, but you don't want to have too many sessions. Schools are already overburdened for sure, but you can't just have one session. One online session usually is not going to result in behavior change for anything. You want to have a lot of activity. You know, we reached out to clinicians and to teachers to say, hey, how do we design this in a way that's going to work? And they're like, you have to have activities. It can't be didactic. We have lots of activities. I can give you one quick example. Sure, please. So one of the activities we have the kids line up and stand up against the wall. Uh, So these are kids, maybe they're in a sex ed class, maybe they're in a health class, maybe it's just a resource period, whatever it is. They line up, stand up against a wall, and then the interventionist will read and they take a step forward if they think it's true, right? It's false. And so one question is the most likely age of engaging in harmful sexual behavior with younger kids is age 14. <laughs> and, and, you know, nobody ever steps forward because nobody knows that, but then they learn it. And we talk about why this makes sense. This is a sex is complex. We are all terrible at the things we do first when we're first doing them and then we get better. And that is absolutely true for something as complicated as sexual behavior that has concepts as complicated as consent, which even adults don't fully uh, understand often, never mind your, your 11 and 12 year old kids. So that's just one way they get up out of their seats. They're, they're moving around. They love the activities. We got lots and lots of feedback. So we developed this intervention and then we were able to pilot test it in four Baltimore City Public Schools, which include the school that my own children go to. They, of course, weren't part of the study. Uh, oh, I'm but, sure um, you've given them plenty of information. <laughs> <laughs> they hear about this their whole lives, <laughs> as have their friends. Uh, so we had this great, this great study that we did in four different schools where two schools got the intervention right away and then two schools got it later. So it was called a wait list control trial. And what we found was evidence that kids did learn these concepts 
you know, we talked about developmental differences and how we need to treat younger children with empathy and how they can't consent and why. So we found increases in knowledge, which is great. We found more importantly, I would say, is we found increase in what we call self-efficacy around avoiding engaging in these behaviors. So the kids that got the intervention relative to the ones who had not yet gotten the intervention reported that they felt more confident that they would recognize inappropriate behavior and that they would be able to avoid that behavior and know what to do if they saw somebody else engaged in it. So that was all, all in the right direction, the correct direction. What we need to do now is a larger randomized trial with more kids, more schools, where we also ask about their actual sexual behaviors. We were not permitted to include questions about sexual behavior by our institutional review board, which felt very, very uncomfortable mm. about asking kids about their own sexual behavior. And, and they, so they were uncomfortable about asking the questions. And then they were also uncomfortable because we need to know that we're not going to have to report kids to the police if they, right. if they acknowledge illegal behavior, because getting reported to the police would not be a reasonable consequence of volunteering for a research project. And we have sure. to, this, get, this gets at research ethics. And so we've been working with our IRB and they really thought parents would just go ballistic if we asked these questions. So we, we had a parent advisory board and they loved the study. They helped oh, us enormously. And we showed them the items that we had been made to, to take out of our assessment protocol. And they, to a person said, we don't know what the problem was. This would have been really, That's I, I know it was really great. You know, and so these were parents that had stepped up to, to serve on an advisory board and they don't represent all parents, but sure, they, sure. they were picked because they were able to represent their, their school's parent community communities. Um, so we are hopeful that with a larger uh, trial, with this next shot, we'll be able to get our IRB, our Institutional Review Board, uh, on, on board and our school on board with, with permitting this kind of work. And we've gotten the funding that will allow us to do this larger study, which is also remarkable. So we hit on that CDC grant to test Help Wanted and then Oak Foundation, after supporting us to launch Help Wanted, uh, is giving us support and my colleague Michael Seidel support to do a large five-year program of work where we identify and validate and disseminate effective perpetration prevention interventions. So this is a this is, uh, we haven't done the formal press release, so I can't say more, much more about it. That'll be coming out in like okay, the next Okay, okay, we'll probe any more about the, that. Yeah, That's still exciting news. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a transformative grant, and it's going to be a really wonderful program of research with, again, really, really great partners at Oak and Michael Cito and colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really excited to launch that early in the new year. Um, so yeah, so responsible behavior with younger children. And you know, I, sh I should also say there's other middle school-based interventions. Shifting boundaries is a middle school-based intervention that's focused on peer-on-peer -peer sexual harassment and violence that has shown significant reductions in perpetration of sexual harassment, sexual violence, and physical violence between middle school kids. And so shifting boundaries is something that I would really like to see get much more broadly disseminated because the data are already here. They've done remarkable research, huge huge randomized trials in large number of schools. And those data are really clear. And then we're hoping to combine forces so we can address both peer on peer and older kid, younger kid behaviors in, in, a, in a joint effort. That, that process hasn't started, but we're excited that it might be a possibility. Can you imagine a future in which um, some some portion of that prevention uh, training or intervention might be available online? 
I mean, the pandemic won't last forever, but I think things are converting virtually often. They really are. And we've given serious consideration to that. We, we, you know, again, the activities, you know, um, there's some things that that make it a little more difficult, Mm -hmm. but you know, the military, you know, we worked um, with the military as they were developing a, uh, a program to, to work with their family. I'm going to forget the Family advocacy program. Thank you. Their family advocacy program. So it, it trains them on youth problem sexual behavior. So Jane Solovsky and some really wonderful people were involved in this. Um, and it's all online because they're scattered to the four winds right. all over the globe. And when I saw what a great job they did, and this was they were mm. working with an, an institution at a California uni- university that's just remarkable. It's the National Center for Traumatic Stress. Uh, I could have that wrong. I'm not sure, but it's a great. But they did a remarkable job taking, you know, this topic and really turning it into an online intervention. So that actually gave me hope mm, that we can do mm. exactly that with our responsible behavior with younger children intervention. We we've got to get over the 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 cost barriers and the barriers that in person interventions require. The the barriers of doing everything in classrooms where teachers are required. You just have to do so much. So we are thinking proactively uh, about exactly that. For those of us who are in the field, you know there are a lot of prevention programs out there which have varying levels of um, demonstrated effectiveness. I would say and. I'm just wondering kind of what your advice is to the field who often say, okay, I have limited prevention dollars. Where should I be making my investment knowing that I have limited time of staff and limited resources? What are your thoughts about that? So I think it is not an easy answer. This country has not put resources into prevention and we have really focused everything on after the fact interventions. And to just give you one example, we spend $6 billion a year to incarcerate sex offenders. Every year, the United States spends $6 billion and that's incarceration. That doesn't include all the other costs of identifying, prosecuting, punishing offenders. We have $1 million a year going into child sexual abuse prevention research. That imbalance is, really makes it difficult uh, and it makes it very hard to, to know what to do and where to go. I think there's a lot of great resources out there. Your organization is certainly one of them. Uh, Communities for Children is another. You serving organizations, we're about to launch a website to support you serving organizations' um, use of child sexual abuse prevention strategies. The CDC is updating its guidelines for preventing and addressing child sexual abuse in the context of youth serving organizations, which is great. We know that U.S. Center for Safe Sport and other sports organizations are really trying to to get out in front of child sexual abuse. But there's not a single clearinghouse that that Mm -hmm. has resources and that has done anything to try to evaluate those resources. We're going to try to, we are going to develop a clearinghouse, but our focus is really going to be on perpetration prevention efforts. And I think I could see a real need for a broader clearinghouse because there are so many things, you know, we, we stood up some resources on our homepage at the Moore Center's website to try to orient parents to uh, what we felt at least were high quality prevention interventions as kids are online more and, and we know more. People out of work and online more are all risk factors for abusive behavior. Prevent Child Abuse America is another place folks can go, but it is hard to sift through it all. Everybody's got, you know, here's seven strategies, here's 10 strategies, here's a whole huge website to navigate. It's, It's not an easy thing. And I think 
organizational staff and volunteers and even leaders, parents, educators, I don't think there's an easy answer about telling them where do you, where should you go for help, for, for information. And we need that. No, but you've, you've pointed to a good public policy place for intervention, yeah. which is funding the creation of such a clearinghouse, yeah. which would be a real service. I mean, there's a clearinghouse for lots of other things, for evidence-based treatments, for, you know, addiction treatment. I mean, you can go down a long health list. Health welfare services, right. the California yeah. clearinghouse, the, the yeah. Colorado Blueprints clearinghouse for uh, mm-hmm. youth wellness. Um, yeah, there's a real need out there. Let's turn for a moment. You were talking about child protection policies, and I, I want to talk to you about that for just a little bit because back in the news, we've had other large institutional abuse cases. You know, the most recent, the ninety-five thousand claims with Boy Scouts, and I know that you guys have been doing some work with youth-serving organizations to look at and really review what. Folks have instituted in the way of child protection policies, a lot of those really following on old cases of institutional abuse, and then really comparing them with some best practices to see how those things align or don't. Without naming any mm-hmm. names or yeah. you know pointing any specific direction, what are you finding in general about how well aligned large organizations are with good policy and where's there room to still develop and grow that especially children's advocacy centers should be paying attention to since we serve so many children. Yeah, we worked with four of the largest, longest serving um, national youth serving organizations in the United States. They give us access, they gave us unprecedented access to their materials. My colleagues on that project were Luciana Asini-Mayton, who works with me at the Moore Center, but also Keith Kaufman, at Portland State University and Ben Matthews at Queensland and Don Palmer, who's at University of California, Davis. And so we had this public health um, and then kind of child uh, safety expert partnership that that I, I feel like was pretty novel. They gave us access. We did what's called a qualitative review of all their materials or many of their materials. And we found that youth serving organizations, at least these ones, which, which had you know pretty good resources, they are doing so much. So in the absence of a national framework or support or anything, they have done so much. We identified more than 1,400 distinct elements of practice, policy, rules, regulations, trainings that were targeted to child sexual abuse prevention or intervention. 1,400 across just four organizations. We compared those with best practice recommendations. So we looked at the CDC's guidelines, the Australian Royal Commission came out with a 27 or eight volume. Uh, We looked at several of those volumes. There's another um, Commit to Kids Canadian organization that has got best practice recommendations. And then we also looked at some more theoretical uh, like situation-based prevention. And we identified 260 distinct best practice recommendations. And then we did a crosswalk and the youth serving organizations were implementing most of those, or they at least had them on paper. We, we weren't able to assess like how often sure. they actually got implemented, but there was a lot of overlap. And you know, for me, the take home was, this is too much. Organizations can't do 260 best practice recommendations. I mean, think of a non-national organization. How are they going to do that? That's overwhelming. Sure. So what we did then is we identified what do these all fall under? We came up with eight practice elements and then what defines the practice element and then some exemplars for how you might achieve that particular practice element. So we wanted to provide a more of an overarching framework 
what I think has been happening is, as you said, there would be some issue came up and a new rule would get made and then a new rule and then another one and then social media came up and sexing became a thing and one-on-one communication right. became a thing. And there's all these rules and they're not designed with any kind of real framework in mind. And many of them aren't designed with even the organization's mission really in mind. And Don Palmer, who I mentioned was one of our partners, he's an organizational sociologist And he was able to bring to us a whole new area of knowledge, which is that layering rule upon rule upon rule is not how you get organizational change or compliance. In fact, what you get is people occasionally or routinely ignoring rules, and that can build a culture Mm. that then is going to miss child sexual abuse, right? Mm, mm. So it's not even just harmless and annoying to be expected to fulfill rules that you can't it can actually be harmful. So we came up with what we hope is a a helpful framework. We're nowhere near done with this work, but with funding from the Bloomberg American Health Initiative here at my school at Hopkins, we were able to do this study. And next Friday, we're launching a website that's going to include our, uh, or maybe it's this Friday, it's soon. We're going to launch a website. That could be tomorrow. It's either tomorrow or in in seven more days or eight days, but we're going to launch a website that talks about that particular project and that provides this, uh, uh, what we call a leadership desk guide that we hope will just help folks orient around what do we need to be thinking about? And then there's different ways to get there. One rule, you don't have to have one blanket rule, you know, apart from, you know, don't sexually abuse children, but you know, when you get down to how does that look, you know, some organizations say there have to be two adults present all the time. Well, if you have a mentorship-based organization that relies on the one-on-one relationship, that's not going to work for you. And frankly, I think it probably doesn't work even for organizations where they do have lots of staff and, and group settings, because what if one adult is late? What if one adult is sick? What if you've got three different kids that have different needs? How do you make that work all the time? And I think what we need to do instead is be thinking about, well, what's the goal? The goal is improve monitoring. The idea is you figure if you have more adults there, they'll all behave better with kids. Well, yeah, absolutely. Is there another way to achieve that? You know, another organization put, puts windows in all of its doors. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That that's but most places don't have the resources to retrofit their buildings, right? But that's still that's another way to increase, you know, monitoring. What if you're a one-on-one organization, you need to be talking to kids more then. They'll tell mm-hmm. you if something's going wrong if you ask them the right questions. So we want people to be thinking about these sort of, as I said, overarching practice elements. What's the objective? And then there's going to be five or 10 or 20 different ways to reach that objective that will work in a local setting for given situations. And we hope that that's helpful. Again, we, we, we want to do more. We're collaborating with the CDC and we, we hope to kind of keep building this line of research out. I think that framework is going to be enormously helpful to folks because as you say, how it plays out in their institution may be different, but even giving a framework for thinking through those things rather than playing whack-a-mole as issues come up, you know, I think is going to be useful and you can also build toward it. You know, we think a lot about as new CECs develop, how do they know what to build toward? And I think having these kinds of child protection framework and sort of outlining larger principles, really, that you're hoping people will observe, I think gives people an opportunity to build toward those principles. So I think that's 
that's terrific. And whether it's tomorrow or a week from now, look forward to yeah, seeing. It's really soon. Exactly. Look forward <laughs> yeah. to seeing the website and we're happy to share it. I'm wondering to kind of take you back to public policy for a moment. It was a huge win to get this million dollars and took so much effort to get it for child sexual prevention research. As you say, it's a drop in the proverbial bucket, mm-hmm. but at the same time, historic, you know, and wonderful. What new directions is it taking you? What are you, I know that you're in partnership with the CDC. And so is there something that you're doing with it that you go, gosh, we just never would have been able to do this without? Well, let me just be clear. So there is a million dollars. There's a line item in the federal budget that started in fiscal year 2020 for a million dollars for child sexual abuse prevention research. But that money goes to the CDC. It doesn't come to them. Right. It's not an earmark. So, you know, they, they launched this. Uh, request for proposals that funded us and another team to do perpetration prevention research. Uh, I hope some of that money is going towards funding their own uh, revision of the their guidelines and and as well as some other efforts. But I see there, and we're still pushing for more money. You know, we want to see at least ten million dollars. And yes, the House doubled it to two million. The Senate has it at one million. So we know it'll be present again in the fiscal year twenty twenty one budget. Maybe it stays the same. Maybe it goes up. We would love to see it go up, but we're not going to stop pushing until mm. we until we get a, a a more serious amount of resources for yes. this. And we would love to see it go well above ten million, but we're trying to be mm. realistic. I think setting up centers uh, around the country that focus on this. So, you know, again, establishing a clearinghouse would be great. One area of work we're hoping to get funding from that would actually come from a different place than the federal government or even our other current funding partners is to develop perpetration prevalence estimates. Nobody knows how many people Mm, have sexually abused mm, children. mm. Nobody knows how many people have sexual interest in children and either have or have not. And and that's a building block for designing prevention strategies because once you get that information, you can look at what are the risk factors, what are the protective factors, and really begin to build around those. So that is a fundamental building block to prevention intervention development and deployment. If you know if there's hot spots in your country where it's more likely to happen than not for whatever reasons, then you deploy there. We don't have that knowledge at all. And that that's that's a that's another kind of big black hole that absolutely needs to get filled. There's so much work to do. <laughs> you'll never work yourself out of a job, Elizabeth, with this. Thankfully, there's because a lot of great people coming up, it's so coming true. up in this area. So I'm really But excited. it feels like we're still a little, as a country overall, certainly not the Moore Center. You guys have been on the leading edge. But I think as a country, we're still so nascent in this area, really, um, and have lots, of, and globally, too. I mean, even though there are countries who've been working at it for a while, in terms of human history, I think it's been a pretty brief Flip. Yep. So we've got lots of work to do. I'm wondering, though, as a new administration comes in, you know, if you were advising them, if they called you up and said, Elizabeth, what should we be paying particular attention to in terms of a national child protection policy? You know, how would you advise them? I would say, let's let's take your winning example of the Violence Against Women Act and let's have a Violence Against Children Act. And let's really mm. devote serious resources not just to child sexual abuse, but to child abuse and, and violence uh, writ large, but really making clear that we include child sexual abuse because that's the one piece that often does get dropped when folks are looking at yes. prevention as we've seen. Um, so I would say, you know, President Biden, <laughs> you did this once and it had a meaningful yes. impact on driving down rates of intimate partner violence. And we need something like that for childhood violence as well. 
And we need it at absolutely that top level of the federal government because that signals to everyone that this is serious, that we're taking this serious. It's not even about the money, although we need money. None of this happens for free. And I think we've left youth serving organizations in particular just out there on their own to struggle with this. We need real resources. We need more than a million dollars a year, but we need a strong signal and a strong federal leadership around this issue. So that is absolutely what I would, I would wanna see happen. You know, me too. And I, and I think the other thing is, I'm really hoping that whoever the attorney general is and the staff that they bring in also are tuned to these issues. You know, having been through numerous administrations, every administration has different kinds of concerns and personal interest. And I'm just really hopeful that the well-being of children really is at the heart of the focus of the new administration. I think it's going to be critical. And also will sort of re I don't know what the right word is, but attend to issues that have been, I would say, a little bit on the back burner. You know, I think in this last administration, I'll just be honest that we have found that work with youth with problematic sexual behaviors has been a little bit fraught. And in the end, we were uh, supported in doing the work, but after a lot of I would say education and advocacy on that front. You know, we are hopeful that, I mean, we're thankful that in the end we got there, but what I would say is it would be wonderful to have an active partner in that work mm-hmm. and, and to have that ongoing. So, you know, that is my editorial comment. I will not put you on the spot. No, well, <laughs> I, the spot I will just but. say that when we were advocating for funding for child sexual abuse prevention research and successfully, we had strong bipartisan support. And among the first people to support us were Republicans. You know, the office of Congressman Andrew Harris, who's here in Maryland, you know, he was one of our earliest and, and strongest advocates. And so fortunately, this is a bipartisan issue. Everybody yes, wants absolutely. to right children. So as the pandemic, you know, we're sort of entering in certain ways into the worst part of it, but with the hope of the vaccine, you know, on the horizon and what that can mean for all of us, I'm just wondering when you think about child sexual abuse prevention and when you're thinking about talking to professionals who, you know, have been working away at this very intensively throughout the pandemic, is there anything that you think that they should pay special attention to both in this sort of dark hour we're in now, but also as things begin to reopen more, as more people are vaccinated, as kids are out in community more, as kids eventually go back to school, what should we be planning for now? I think we need to get more clarity around who can we help and how. And so, for example, I think mandatory reporting has done a lot of good in our country and in, and in most of the countries that do have some form of mandatory reporting. I don't ever want to go back to the place where if a professional sees a child who's been harmed, however they were harmed, and they can make a choice to ignore that. I don't ever want to see that again. At the same time, we have essentially similar mandatory reporting that we've had for decades, and there's no nuance in it. There's very few ways that we could support somebody who's reaching out for help without also them risking Again, even if they haven't offended, if let's say they live with younger children who are their siblings or their own children, if if somebody comes and asks for help around sexual interest in children, you as a professional could reasonably believe that the younger children in that household are at risk and make a call that is going to potentially deeply and perhaps permanently alter that person's life. And, and that keeps people from reaching out for help. We need a more nuanced uh, approach 
that allows trained professionals to work with individuals who are seeking help, who can then seek that help in a way that keeps them safe and keeps the children around them safe. I don't have all the answers to that. And I believe that would take some real work. I think that's something that a violence against children act and an administration that surrounds that could really start focusing on, but we need some help. We really need to, to shift from, if you suspect anything's harmful, you have to report to something that is able to, to meet the needs of everybody. So what question have I um, not asked you that you wish I had, and I want to make sure that we cover anything that you want to make sure gets out there to our field. This is, I would have to say the most enjoyable interview I've ever done. And I've done it. That's <laughs> how you and I met I think, years ago. Um, this is fantastic. I, there's nothing. <laughs> there's literally. I love hearing that. This is great. This is really great. I mean, as you already know, our, our line is child sexual abuse is preventable, not inevitable. And focusing on perpetration prevention is as important, if not more, than focusing on other prevention avenues. I love that tagline, by the way. I mean, it's just, it just hits so the right note. I mean, I, th- I think that this is our whole problem is that we st- somehow still believe it's inevitable. And I love that you're counteracting that and we support you in it. So I hope you'll be back next time to talk about your research when it is ripe for that discussion. And I can't wait to talk to you then. So thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Grace. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to One in 10. If you think it's as appalling as I do that only $1 million is in the federal budget for child sexual abuse prevention research, then email or dial up your members of Congress and let them know that we need to do more. And to learn more about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, go to our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.